several years ago, you may remember it, we did a thing called Hoosier One. And we had hundreds of you turn in names of individuals who were your one. Those people that you desperately wanted to come to know the Lord. Some of those were family members. Some of those were dear friends. And I have no doubt that as you prayed for them, you probably have told them the story of Jesus. And there may be some of those people that you've told the story of Jesus over and over and over again. And you're wondering, why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? Why isn't it that they don't, they don't, just, they don't just, just wake up? You know what I'm talking about? And look and, and see. Oh, let me give you what the scripture says. I don't have this on the screen, but this one. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and this, this one reason it's not on the screen is yesterday. I was praying about this message and I said, you know what? I, 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 I read somebody else's blog and, and they said, here's the reason. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you hear that? The God of this world, Satan himself, has blinded them. And that word for blinded is a word that means that you didn't naturally become blind. It is somebody that has blinded you. Something that has happened that somebody has done and it has blinded you. And that means that when you see the stories of Jesus making the, you know, the, the, the blind where they can see, you realize that's what we are absolutely praying for and what we're seeking in those people. We need a miracle. We need a miracle in order for those people to come to know Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a part in this process. For we have a part in the process of awakening these people. Not to condemn them. Not to jump their case. Not to tell how bad they are. But to have them come into that, out of that darkness where they can't see. Into the marvelous light. So how do we wake them up? First Peter chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how do we do this? Looking at the scripture right here. So we must grow into who we are to awaken the people. We need to grow into who we are. We need to be these people that Peter has said that we are. That God has said that we are. He has said you are a chosen race. Now members of a race have a common ancestor. You realize that? A race, you've got a common ancestor somewhere back there. And our common ancestor is Jesus. Understand as believers, we have a common ancestor. And that Jesus who has made us one with himself. Understand that. He has made us one with himself. We trust in Jesus and he is making us one with himself. It says in John seventeen twenty. 
I do not ask for these only. Who are these that he's asking for? He's asking for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We need to be one. Now, many people, many people, even within the church, many people, they will identify as Christian But in reality, they don't identify with Christ. There's a difference there, by the way. They can answer the questions correctly, but they don't really identify with Christ. There was an evangelist that was many, many years ago, a guy named Marjo Gortner. Marjo preached the gospel when he was five years of age. He was a sensation. When he got to be an adult, he did a documentary on himself. He didn't believe any of this stuff. He told the story in his documentary as he went around to other churches and he was preaching. He told the story of how his parents would hold a pillow over his head in order to get him to memorize the sermons that they told him that he was going to preach. And he learned how to preach that way by having those. They didn't want to leave a mark on his face. You understand? They didn't want to leave any marks on him. So they did this by holding a pillow over his face, nearly suffocating this, this kid. And he did not believe. And when he was doing this documentary, he was doing it to expose Christianity. And so he got, for his film crew, he got a film crew that was normally, they did pornography. They were pornography group. And he sat down with them, and it's in the, it's in the video. It sat down with the, in, the, in the video. It says, when you go into these churches, and they see all of the things that you don't look like a Christian to them, you, they were going to say, do you know Jesus? You answer the question this way. I've been washed in the same blood as you have, brother. Quotes what he said. Do you understand? You can say the right words, and you're not really a believer. And there are many people that are not one, meaning O-N-E, with Christ. We need to have, that's one of the reasons we don't have a unity so often within the church. It's not that we're always going to agree. I understand that. But the lack of unity is that we don't have the same purpose. We don't have the same direction that we're going. And many times it's because those people do not know Jesus. Or they are so immature that they don't act like they know Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul would write, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You know, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Only in the flesh? Only as the the people who do not know Jesus the same way as they act? And so that there becomes a disunity. Disunity not in the sense that there's a, you know, that we're always fighting, but disunity because we don't have the same purpose. And disunity is evidence of some being infants in Christ. That's what the scripture says right there. That there's some people that are just infants in Christ. And the other one is that in a church full of strife does not win people to Christ. When we are fighting, and we're not fighting, by the way, that's a good thing. 
But I'm saying, but when a church starts having the bickering and fighting, you can't win people to Jesus. When there is a, something that we have against somebody else, even if we're not fighting globally as a church, when we, are, we got something against somebody else and we won't give forgiveness, there's a disunity that goes on there. There is a, there's not a one with Christ in this, for Christ forgives. He always forgives. When I was at Calvary in Knoxville, I've told you the story of how I went there six years after revival started. Six years after revival started, and it was still going on. Revivals don't last two months. Real revivals. Real revivals last years. Years and years. I got there six years. And so I didn't know the story of how it was that revival had come to that church. And they told me the story of, a, of an evangelist coming, a guy named Jack Taylor. And as Jack was preaching, people got under such conviction of the Holy Spirit that they got up and started to go over and apologize to one another. I mean, when Baptists move, it's a miracle by itself, you know, but this is what happened. They got up and instead of coming down the aisle, they went over and they said, I I need to ask for your forgiveness. And they started giving forgiveness to each other. And revival broke out. And let me tell you what happened afterwards. You see, Donna, you know, when you've got somebody that will not forgive you and you've asked for forgiveness, you pray for them. This church became one of the most amazingly praying churches that you ever had seen. And when, when we had no evangelism program. I mean, we did absolutely nothing, no advertising whatsoever, and we baptized more than any other church in the area. We had people going out, winning people to Christ and bringing them to church with them. It was the most amazing thing. If you came as a visitor, we might send you a letter. We certainly didn't visit you. And so... We saw so many people coming to Christ. And why was that? Because the people that called themselves Christians identified with Christ. And now they had this unity together to serve him completely in that way. So we need to be that chosen race. Then he says, you are a royal priesthood. Now, in verse 5, Peter has said we're a holy priesthood. But here he calls us a royal priesthood. Now, a holy priesthood makes a lot of sense. You know, a, a, a priest, uh, even today, a priest is someone who can administer, administer the, right, <clears throat> the holy rites and sacraments. A priest at that time was someone who would offer the sacrifices. The priest, and a priest generally is, a go-between man and God. Now, it's important that there's holiness that is there. Understand, you've got to have the holiness before you could go before God. But we are a people made clean by the blood of Jesus so that we can go directly to God the Father. You understand? That's how we got to be the priest. We don't have a go-between anymore. 
We don't need a go-between anymore. We have been made holy. So you do not need another person. You don't need to come and say, this person has got better prayers than I got, and they can send these prayers up to God. You can go directly yourself because anyone that, that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ can enter the holy of holies. But he doesn't say we're just simply a holy priesthood. He says we are a royal priesthood. And that means that the order in which we have entered into has a king. And this is the king. And we are the children of the king's household. And we are empowered then to go directly to Jesus as our high priest. And we are empowered to go directly to Jesus as our king as well. He is our king and we can go directly in there. That makes us more than beggars when we pray. Do you understand? When you pray, you don't have to have a reason to say, you know what, I'm, I'm like a beggar. I don't know that God's going to answer me because I'm not. You are a child of the king. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw near the throne of grace with confidence. Let's go in boldly asking whatever that we need. Rather than being a people of worry, we become a people of prayer. A people that are, you know, lacking of confidence. We need to be a people of confidence. Let's do an experiment. Let's see this. We could get a group of people that what we'll tell this first group, I want you to worry and not pray. I just want you to worry. And I want this other group over here to pray and not worry. Let's see who's more effective. Let's see which one turns out better. Do you realize what I'm trying to say to you? When the people on the outside could see us as a people of prayer and not a people of worry. A people who have confidence and not a people that are, that are just afraid all of the time. When we would be that people of prayer in that way, then the light comes on. When I was in seminary, I had a car that the clutch would go out on a regular basis. I'm going to tell you what, I bought that car. I could actually, I changed the clutch so many times in the thing, I could do it under an hour. I mean, I just go in there, I could pull it in, I could pull that bell housing off, I could put that clutch in. And it, it was one of those times that, you know, I was just, you know, it's busy, you know, you're studying, you're working, you're doing all of this kind of stuff. And man, you just don't have time to go work on the clutch in your car. But a clutch is pretty important when you have a standard transmission car. Just let you know that. It's pretty important. And so I remember that my wife said to me, why don't you pray about it? And I'll be very honest with you. I said, pray over a clutch? It's not a person. It's a clutch. You want me to anoint it with 30 weight oil while I'm at it? You know, I said, you know, that's the way it was. But to prove her wrong, I prayed about it. And the clutch started working. 
You know, I know that's pretty simple. I know that's really, really simple. But why do I put limits on what God can do? I mean, you don't have to have this monumental problem to go to God and, and then and, you know, worry about it. Why do I say to God, you can't do that? You can't work on something mechanical. You can't change things like I want. That's the thing, folks. If I was a person of prayer, I would recognize I have and we have a direct line to God. A direct line. We can walk right into the throne room. And we can do it because we're not only a holy priesthood, we're a royal priesthood. He says that not only this, we, we are a holy nation. Now, the citizens that, uh, when you live in a nation, you, buy, you, you obey the laws of that nation. You understand that? You see, you know, and most of the time, by the way, folks, most of the time we don't have to run to Jesus to find out what we're not supposed to do. A lot of times it's just right here. You understand what I'm saying? You can read it right here. I mean, when you go to the, let's say, for example, should I pay my taxes in a corrupt country? I mean, if you think this country's corrupt, I don't know that you do or you don't. But I'm just saying, if it were a corrupt country, should I pay my taxes? What did Jesus say? Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Do you think the Roman government might be a little bit on the corrupt side? Absolutely. So we understand some of this. And see, but in this, in this holy nation, we have an ultimate rule. We obey the king and he makes the laws. Who is the king? It is Jesus. And living at peace in a nation requires that you obey the laws. That's just absolutely the truth. See, and what happens is as believers, we have the Holy Spirit that has come into us. And when we disobey God, there's always an estrangement between us and God. Because what happens is, is that we decided to walk a little ways away from God. You know, God is always asking us, come walk with me. But he's never telling us, I'll come over there and walk with you in your sin. And so what we have is we have a gap there. We call it our conscience. Sometimes we just call it our conscience. Our conscience is bothering me because of what I have done. And we have, we have distanced ourselves. God didn't move, but we certainly have moved. And so that what happens is we get over here and we get into our problems. And you know what we say? Where are you, God? You know what God's saying? I never moved. I never went anywhere. I was always right here. It is you that have moved away. You've not obeyed. And so what happens is, is that when you have that, that walking along with God, it's, we're created this way, folks. When we're walking along with God, we have peace in our hearts. And when we're not walking along with God, that peace starts to dissipate. And we get away from God. And you will have peace in this obedience to what the Lord has told you to do. For a holy nation is set apart to follow the Lord. And a holy nation is at peace with the Lord. And every one of us needs that peace. And here's the bottom line on this. We were in the beginning created in God's image. And in that image, we have this indelible things that have been set still in us, even though we've corrupted a lot of things. There is an indelible image that is still within us. And one of those things is, is that we want to be with our creator. 
And so we need to connect with God and uh, who, is, who has created us. We need to be this, make this connection with God who has created us. And when we, those who resist that connection don't have the peace. They don't have the peace with God any more than a man in the desert can have peace without water. That's how important it is that we walk with the Lord. And I know that there's in the world the blindedness. The blindness says, you know what? You need more money if you're going to have peace. Let me ask you, you look at the people that have a lot of money. Do you see them having a lot of peace? If you think that you have more money, you'll have peace. You realize that they don't. And for those people that say, well, you know what? If I had all of these adoring fans, I would have peace. You find those people that have all the adoring fans, do they have peace? No, they don't. Peace comes when we're at peace with God. We are the holy nation that follows after him. And then he says, we are a, you are a people for his own possession. The word there, the Greek word, and I'm going to Greek you just for a minute here, is, is peripoesis. Peri is the word that means surround. We get the word perimeter from it. Okay, that's the beginning of the word. That's the prefix of the word. And then poesis means creation or work. Now, you realize what that really means. We are God's creation that he surrounds. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And God holds on to us. It is like creating something and drawing a circle around it. It is about him surrounding us. As if you were the only person in the world, he holds on to you. I don't know if that ever comes to you because I know that things happen and some things that happen that are bad. And you don't realize sometimes, but you are the person that he is holding on to. God made us and holds us close to himself. We are his. And he will remain close no matter how far you get away. You know, it's like I've said with the prodigal son. The prodigal son got far away from his father, but the father never got far away from the son. You realize what was going on there? You know, what is amazing to me, though, is that even though that son would treat his dad as if he were dead, I mean, when you go to your dad and say, I want my inheritance now, you're saying, I want to treat you like you're dead. Okay, you understand that. Okay. When it came down to when he's in the pig pen, he said, I will go back not to the guy who gave me the money. I will go back to my father. He knew to whom he belonged. I will tell you that distance, when it comes with God, distance is not figured in miles. Distance is figured in the heart with God. You know, I used to say that we, I used to like this verse here, and I say, it looks to me like we were God's, uh, his own science fair project. You know, he worked on us, you know, and he got us around us, but it's more than that. We are his children, and we love and provide for our children, and we would do anything for them without them ever doing anything for us. And while this is true, folks, we sometimes forget that. We forget. And, you know, we may think he's forgotten us or maybe we think that he just doesn't care. But I want to tell you that is never, never the case. And this hope that we have in this gives us assurance. And our hope is not in hope itself. Our hope is in our father holding on to us. 
realize he's holding on to us. We need to live this way. Live this way. Now, these four pillars that are the foundation for bringing light into the world, being a chosen race, being a royal priesthood, being a holy nation, being a people for God's own possession. That's, we have a testimony that reflects his marvelous light. If we are the people that God has called us and told us what we are, then we will have a marvelous light around us. We will have a light that awakens people. You know how when you can turn the light on in, somebody, in the room and, and somebody will wake up, they usually will yell at you when that happens. But that, you know what I'm saying? This is the deal. We, open, we, we turn on the light by the way we live. We turn on the light in our conversations. We turn on the light in our forgiveness. We turn on the light in our love. We turn on our life and our security that God is holding on to us. We turn on the light in our confidence in prayer. And we turn on the light in our peace. We proclaim this light by the way we live. And we turn on the light. You know, do you think that the world has any of these that can measure up to what we have? Absolutely not. And we simply have to live like who we are. And I know that it's a hard time to win some people to Christ. But I would say we tell them. We tell them by the way we live. We tell them with a testimony of our faith. We tell them and love them. Love them into the kingdom of God as those who will be God's own possession. Think of that. People are awakened when their names are called. You realize that? When my name is called, I wake up like that. I mean, there can be a thunderstorm, an earthquake, and a hurricane going on at the same time. You know what I'm saying? And in, in, in our house, I probably a house. My wife says a house could be on fire, and I could sleep, but she can call my name, and I'll wake up. Here's the story, folks. It is God who calls their names. We don't call their names, but we show them the light. We show them the light, and so God will choose those. Who choose him. He chooses them before they choose him because he knows they're going to choose him. You know, people wandering in the, in the darkness don't know what's going on. Let's be that light that brings people to him.